0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Perhaps more than at any other time in modern history, we have a deep need to understand who we are. What tribe do we belong to? How in a rapidly changing, interconnected, and homogenized world do we fit in? Who are we in relationship to everyone else? Just look at the advertising for home DNA testing and you'll get the idea. Since it's less clear every day where we're going, It feels more comfortable to look back at our ancestry and at least try and be clear about where we came from and how it defines who we are. The problem is that that's complicated too. Who we are is the result not just of our DNA or of our heredity, but of an array of complex shifting forces that we also have very little control over. We're going to talk about this today with esteemed science writer Carl Zimmer. Carl Zimmer is an award-winning science writer, a columnist for the New York Times, a frequent contributor to Radiolab, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about his latest book, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. Carl Zimmer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A delight to have you here. We had this notion that if we could just understand who we are, understand our DNA, that would tell us everything we needed to know. We've been uh, some people have been sorely disappointed by that.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that we really put a, a lot of. Uh, pressure on, on these uh, DNA testing companies to really open up our inner selves. And, you know, maybe these companies are, are playing into that with some of their advertising, you know, get to know the real you and right. things like that. Um, but you know, our, our curiosity about heredity is is just so powerful that, you know, it's kind of inevitable, I think. And that's one reason I decided to write this book because you know I've been fascinated with heredity as long as I can remember and it's only more so now that I've got kids and uh, I, I think that lots of other people share that that curiosity and fascination and so I wanted to explore like how we developed that obsession and what science can actually tell us about heredity. Is
0: that obsession and that fascination something that we've always been interested in, even before we had the ability to to sequence DNA, to to understand any of this from a really scientific perspective, that there's something sort of, you know, to, to be flip about it, something in our DNA that makes us quest to understand this?
1: Well, you know, what's fascinating is that, you know, we, we we've only known that, you know, DNA is the, the stuff of inheritance for, you know, about 60 years. And, and before that, um, if you go back far enough, it's actually kind of hard to, to to find people thinking about heredity the way we do. Um, you know, if you go all the way back to, say, someone like Aristotle, they don't say like, well, people are tall because they inherited something biological from their parents. They, Aristotle would say, like, well, you know, they, people have this particular form, and then if they're born in a particular climate, then, then it might affect how tall they grow. He kind of thought about people as, you know, developing kind of like the way milk ferments into cheese. It's just sort of a natural process. And if you just repeat the recipe, you'll get, you'll get that particular kind of flavor of person. Um, So it's really fascinating. It's only really in the 1800s that heredity starts to emerge as a real scientific question in the way we think about it. Um, And yet, um, since then, it's completely taken over the way we think about it.
0: And part of what's taken over, at least initially, was the kind of nature versus nurture debate.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny that, you know, nature versus nurture actually, uh, it's a line that you can actually see in Shakespeare. Um, and so it's obviously like a a long running question that, you know, how, how much does it matter whether, you know, you're raised by, um, you know, in a, in a wealthy family versus a poor one. You know, people have speculated about that. Is there some sort of true nature that comes out anyway? Uh, and, you know, the people would claim, well, if you're of noble birth, then even if you're, you know, raised by shepherds, your nobility will just come out. Um, but, you know, that got translated into the modern language of genetics in terms of the question of how much of the variation between us is due to the variation in our genes. Uh, And, you know, in in a way, uh, we're only just starting to answer that question because now you can finally like look at individual genes in thousands or even millions of people and say, well, you know, the, the people who have this particular gene on average are maybe a little bit taller than other people or a little bit greater risk of developing diabetes, things like that. And then if you add that all up, you start to get at this nature versus nurture question.
0: There's also this aspect that you talk about is the degree the degree to which the DNA that, that defines all of us is fragmented, that it's not clear-cut and simple in trying to understand our ancestry, for example.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, you, you can't think of your DNA as being some sort of... Um, full, intact inheritance that, that was passed down, unchanged from distant ancestors. You know, in every generation, DNA actually gets shuffled. You know, you, you have two, two pairs of, chromo, of each chromosome. Those chromosomes actually swap pieces of DNA. And then uh, parents uh, pass down just one copy uh, of those two to their offspring. So you have this weird kind of mixing and shuffling happening in every generation. So your DNA, you, you did inherit it from your ancestors, but it's only a, a very um, uh, limited sampling of little fragments of DNA that have been carried down through the centuries. And you know, so, so you can have lots of ancestors from whom you don't inherit any DNA at all um, just because their DNA didn't happen to make it into your own genome. Uh, so we have to sort of think beyond DNA if we're going to understand our ancestors.
0: How should we be thinking about that, then, in trying to at least get our head around the idea of where we come from?
1: Well, certainly, you know, the genes that we inherit do affect us in a very personal, intimate way. But, you know, we're inheriting other things as well. And in in uh, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, I look at some of these other potential kinds of heredity. And I'd argue that one of the most compelling ones is culture. You know, we, we inherit languages, we inherit knowledge, we inherit customs from our parents and from other people in earlier generations. And those get passed down through the generations, uh, and surprisingly, much like genes do. And so, you know, if you want to understand, you know, how you ended up the way you are, your sense of your own identity and so on. Yeah, sure, think about your genes that you inherited, but think about the culture that you have inherited from the place where you've grown up.
0: Isn't it a combination of those things, that the way the genes really express themselves given a particular cultural environment?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, whether a gene is, quote-unquote, good for you or bad for you actually depends on, the environment in which you're living. So, you know, I, for example, <laughs> I have a gene um, known as FTO and, and the variant that I have, I have these two copies that actually make me on average a few pounds heavier than I'd be if I didn't have them. And so, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't necessarily blame my parents for that <laughs> because <laughs> the fact is that it only is associated with a greater body weight um, in just the past few decades. So older people who have this particular variant that I have, they're not any heavier than, than other people. That's because it really starts to become an issue when you start eating our modern diet. You know, when you're eating potato chips, when you're eating ice cream when you're having soda all the time, when you have this sort of abundance of carbohydrates and sugars and so on, suddenly FTO becomes this this gene that you have to be a little concerned about inheriting.
0: It also, as you talk about in uh, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, it really makes us rethink the whole idea of race. Talk a little about that.
1: So race is a, is a concept that emerged uh, really in the 1400s and 1500s, you know, it's so at first, uh, you can see these guides for uh, breeding horses or dogs and falcons. And you, you'd get advice about how to, uh, to breed a, a noble race of these animals. And, you know, you just had to be careful about the individuals that you picked to breed. So there was a, this idea that you had groups of animals that were somehow um, – different from each other in a sort of a hierarchy that some were just better than others. And, um, that started to apply over to humans. And so you started to have in Spain, for example, um, noble families would have to prove that they didn't have any, uh, quote unquote, Jewish blood in their, uh, ancestry because Jews were considered a separate race. Uh, And so you had, had the Jewish race, and then you had the old Christians in Spain, and they had to be considered distinct. This then spreads to the groups of people who then Spain and other European countries colonize. So now... Africans become identified as a different race. And there's something about all Africans that, that justifies their being enslaved, you know, that they, that they all have, you know, inferior mental uh, capacities. You know, that becomes very popular to talk about. They inherit the, a biblical curse. Um, these are really powerful ideas that get carried over all the way into the age of genetics where somehow... Um, people who have ancestry from different places are judged to be better or worse. And you can use, you can use whatever, uh, different language you want, different code words. You're like, Oh, well, you know, some people are, they're just smarter than other people. or they, these people just have less impulse control. It's still this racist language. But if you look at our DNA, you, you see that it just, our DNA does not support these old fashioned notions of race. You know, that, that human populations are not that distinct at all. Um, and these supposed differences generally do not hold up. And, um, and you know, a lot of, a lot of the way we think about race is just a social construct, Mm -hmm. you know? So somebody in the United States with say 30%, you know, African ancestry, uh, might identify themselves and be identified by other people as black, even though most of their ancestry is from Europe. You know, why is that? You know, we, we refer to Obama as our first black president. He's, he has just as much European ancestry as African ancestry. So why, why is that the choice? Well, that has to do with our customs about identifying people as slaves. You know, that's where it comes from. And, and so... You can't mix up these, this, this historical language, this so, these social constructs with the biology, or you get into real trouble.
0: How complicated is that for scientists that are working in this area to put aside, you know, even their own cultural ideas that, that they've grown up with, that they've been infused with over time, and, and really put that aside with respect to the work they're doing and the things that you're talking about?
1: I think it does require sort of constant um, awareness and, and a- constantly uh, asking oneself, am I am I sliding back onto prejudices or false assumptions? Um, you know, because and I, as I show in my book, you know, science ha- does has uh, some pretty uh, awful um, episodes uh, that they can't that scientists should themselves should not forget about. I mean, when genetics was discovered in the early 1900s, a lot of very, very prominent American scientists used that as as justification for pushing for all sorts of policies that we would find abhorrent today. Policies such as um, barring interracial marriage, uh, claiming that people from Italy or Russia were were genetically, uh, intellectually inferior and therefore should not be admitted into this country, Um, justifying sterilization so that people who were judged unfit could not pass down their genes to future generations. These things, all these things happened, and they happened uh, with the full support of some of the leading scientists of the day. So we know that these things can happen. So scientists have to be completely aware of that as we gain more knowledge about heredity today and also more tools for controlling it.
0: And the subset of this conversation about race and genetics is the notion and the mythology that has surrounded the connection between heredity and intelligence. Talk a little about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, this has actually been a, a long-running um, obsession, I would say, with, with some of the pioneers of heredity. Uh, in my book, I talk about <clears throat> Francis Galton, who, who really started to use the word heredity in the English language uh, in, the, in the 1800s uh, as a Turning it into a scientific question is really important to the study of heredity, uh, and he was also very obsessed with his conviction that that in, intelligence, genius, talent, uh, was running in families, and just like any physical trait, um, and he, you know, would look at people he went to uh, university with at Cambridge who were really great at math or philosophy, and find that. Well, their brothers or their fathers also did very well at Cambridge as well. And that sort of led him into this conviction that it was, it was inherited. But Galton didn't have any really good way of, of measuring intelligence. Um, and in the early 1900s, the first intelligence tests started to emerge. Uh, and as I talk about in my book, they were immediately, uh, used to, um, to sort of divide up people into these different categories. So the category of moron, for example, was then created to describe people who are a little bit below average on intelligence test scores. And then, you know, then this was used as justification saying like, oh, well, people with these who score low on these tests, they are a danger to society. They become criminals. They uh, and, and they are breeding faster than other people. So therefore, we have to prevent them from reproducing. So this came to this was what was called eugenics. And, um, and, you know, it really, then, you know, Nazi scientists took all of these uh, ideas that Americans were developing and then took them to even more extremes.
0: One of the concerns that you have after having looked at all of this and, and looking at this kind of awful history that you were just detailing, and putting it in the context of where we are today, what we can find out, what we can know about ourselves, these home tests, as we were talking about before, and the way all of this is going to continue to make uh, scientific progress. What what are your fears about us having access to all of this information?
1: Uh, One of my fears is that we will use this information as uh, justification for pre-existing prejudices um, to to sort of cover our biases or um, you know newfangled forms of racism in the language of science, uh, and I I just hope that people will will recognize that um, people have fall into that temptation in the past and there have been bad results of it. Um, and so we just have to constantly be asking ourselves, um, is what science telling us, allowing us to come to these conclusions. So for example, you know, uh, you, you can't, people are, are, are very concerned about, you know, uh, the prospect of editing DNA because, uh, oh, we could create a, a, a race of super genius. Uh, super strong super people or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that has more to do with science fiction than it has to do with the actual biology of the brain, of muscles and so on. Um, we, that, that is not actually a really, pl- that's not a plausible uh, scenario. Um, so we need, we should look at, at what could realistically happen and talk about the ethics of, of what really could, could be happening uh, and decide what we want to try to encourage and what we want to present.
0: And bringing it back then to science, what is the cutting edge of all the scientific research at the moment, and what are we still trying to understand and find out from a scientific perspective?
1: Well, in, when uh, you talk about uh, something like intelligence, for example, I mean, it, it turns out that there are indeed genes that can influence how people do on intelligence tests. I mean, that for for all of the terrible things that happen in terms of eugenics, the fact is that you can point to particular genes and say these have, on average, you know, certain small effects on intelligence. Um, what's fascinating is that a lot of the, those genes are involved in the growth of cells in our brain and how they connect to each other. So uh, this is actually giving us a little bit of a window into how our brains work, but we, we really just are barely starting to understand uh, how all that works. Um, and, um, and then, but then also in terms of, you know, editing uh, DNA, um, we've gained uh, some, you know, incredible new powers thanks to the research of scientists. Um, people may be hearing about a new technology called CRISPR. That's really just incredibly revolutionized our ability to, to zero in on a particular bit of DNA and rewrite it. Um, this has been a long a dream of scientists, and um, now it's becoming real.
0: And, of course, as you touched on before, sort of science fiction and, and, and our preconceived notions about all of this are in some ways a positive thing, but in some ways a pretty dangerous thing.
1: Uh, I, yeah, I, I think that if we sort of um, uh, just fall prey to fear, then... Um, it's going to then it's going to be a real mistake, uh, and and we shouldn't forget that you know the, these uh, kinds of technology could have incredible uh, benefits for us. You know, if you if you if you carry a gene for let's say Huntington's disease, I mean, if your children inherit that gene, they are going to get Huntington's disease and they are going to die of it, and there's no treatment for it. And that would be true for future generations. Um, if we can edit that out of our own DNA, um, should you know, should we consider doing that, um, or is, is should that be off limits because we're scared that uh, someone's going to do something bad with this technology? You know, I think I think we need to really uh, you know look at the real potential for, for this technology for good and for bad and, and really come up with some clear-cut ideas about how to use it.
0: Carl Zimmer, his book is She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. Carl, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank
1: you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you.